Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Let's talk back to school. My guest is Patty Backus, the uh, education columnist at the Georgia Strait, former chair of the Vancouver School Board. Very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, Patty. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Let me play this for you. Here is Terry Mooring, the president of the BC Teachers Federation, uh, describing some of her concerns about heading back to school. The cohorts are either size 60 or 120 students and teachers. Right now, those within the same group don't have to stay two meters apart. The BC Teachers Federation says that's not good enough. Classroom density needs to be reduced so that physical distancing is possible inside classrooms and within the cohorts. Okay, that's uh, Terry Mooring, the Teachers Union President and Global Reporter Brad McLeod on there as well. Patty, what are your concerns right now? You've been writing a lot about the concerns about going back to school. What are your thoughts right now as we get closer to back to school in BC? Well, I think as the case numbers, you know, roll in each day, they're not looking great and we're not trending the way we wanted to be. And I think there's a lot of uh, very justifiable anxiety and concern about the plan to head back to school. And, and at, at this point, we're still waiting for some of the details to come out of school districts. I think those come out uh, tomorrow, which should be yeah. posted across the province. So, but, you know, I think parents are in a really tough spot trying to decide if this is going to be safe uh, for their kids and their family. Many people have family members with some uh, immuno issues. And of course, teachers have the same concerns and many teachers also have kids in school. So suddenly those little bubbles we've been maintaining for so long are going to get much, much larger. And in and, and, and situations that we're being told over and over again are high risk. We're told that being indoors in poorly ventilated spaces for extended periods is the you know probably the riskiest situation for transmission of the virus and that pretty much describes classrooms so you know a lot of this has been kind of pushed over now to school districts to figure out how they're going to implement it right. and teachers who work in schools know what schools are like and are saying this this just doesn't add up and okay, I, so but I think people what, are really concerned what are the answers though I, I sort of take your point on some of the concerns that have been outlined by a lot of people uh, but what are the answers? I mean, kids got to go back to school, right? I mean, we're all agreed on that. We can't have the schools continue to be shut down, right? Well, absolutely. I don't think yeah. there's any debate about the importance of school and the, the damage that it can cause for some kids to be out of school for such an extended period. I think for many, it's the lack of options. There are some who remote learning is something they would like to continue with and would like that option to stay connected to their school and waited out a while, their kids were doing all right, or they're, they're ready to just stay out for a while, and they're not being given that choice. Um, if you don't want your child to go back to school more or less full-time, you're, you're, it's up to you to figure out a homeschooling situation of some type. Most of those programs have wait lists now. They're full, and it often means you have to give up your space in your local school. Um, and, and that's, 
you know, that's because of the whole funding uh, model we have in BC. It's for student funding. If you're not in class on September 30th enrolled, your district won't get your funding for you. So, and school districts are so tightly budgeted. If they start assigning teachers when there aren't enough students to cover the cost of those, they run into financial issues. So, I, I think there needs to be, there should have been much more effort to look at some models. There's obviously lots of teachers who would prefer to teach remotely because of their own health issues or family members. So, you know, figure out what percentage want to do that, what percentage of students, and make that an option. And it's being done, I believe, in Calgary, has, has their public schools have set up that model. It's doable. It's going to take some work, but it doesn't seem, this do you- government seems to be all or nothing on go back to school or don't. Okay, speaking to Patty Bacchus from the Georgia Strait about back to school, it's going to come down, I think, largely to individual plans by school districts. And as you mentioned, there is a deadline this week for the publishing of of individual plans in each school district. And that's going to be very interesting for a lot of parents when they see these detailed plans. But if you take a look at like what's come out of some of the districts, like the Vancouver School Board, for example, put out a plan last week that's kind of like a hybrid plan for high schools in which classes would be split up into two groups of 15 kids each. I mean, so, you know, yeah. is there is there room here for school districts to get creative here to split kids up and to try and maintain that physical distancing? Well, it's interesting that they're doing that, and, and kudos to them. I think Surrey's come out with the same thing, and I think we'll be hearing that for a lot for high schools. And, and you know, it's interesting because that's not actually what the plan government put out on July 29th said. It said everyone's going back full time, um, and there's, there's just... You know, which was different from the the framework they laid out in the spring that that said stage two high schools would be back forty percent of the time. So I think what I've seen is is school districts saying like the only way we can do this is we're going back to the original stage two before it was changed on, on release in late what? July, and 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 coming up with their own plans. And I suspect the ministry is not going to argue that when they realize what they what they propose just isn't workable. What do you uh, think to of- do that safely? What do you think about masks, face masks in schools? Because we've heard the government talk about face masks being required, maybe in some circumstances, but maybe not at all times. There seems yeah. to be there's some confusion out there about exactly when masks will be required and when they won't. Your thoughts? Yeah, they started out on July 29th when Ron Fleming released the plan. It said masks were a personal choice, which seemed surprising and then on I think it was August 17th they revised that to say well no for middle school and high schools they will be required in places like hallways and on buses but not in classrooms necessarily because oh. it, you know it can be difficult to go all day with them what do you think of that still. I you know I it probably depends on the classroom if you're in a poorly oh. ventilated room where you can't physically distance uh, which is probably a lot of high school classrooms. I think, you know, I would be, if, if it were me, I would not want to be in that room for four or five, six hours a day. There's no way you'd get me in an unventilated room with 30 bodies uh, not wearing masks if they couldn't physically distance and have really good okay. ventilation. And okay, here's, so here's I, what I can understand the, nerv- the nervousness about that. Recognizing how important it is for our children across the board to get the education plus the social interaction of the school setting that they need right now. And we know that. We've seen the data from here and from around the world, the negative impacts that have happened um, with schools closing. 
Okay, that's uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, of course, British Columbia's public health officer, talking about the importance of getting our schools up and running again and uh, kids back in class and uh, back mixing with their with their friends. My guest is Patty Backus from the Georgia Strait. We, we touched on this earlier, Patty, about the importance of kids getting back into class because there's a downside to the schools being closed as well in terms of health, not uh, mental health, physical health as well. Kids got to get back in school. I mean, that's the bottom line, right? Well, they do, but do they need to all be there full-time is the other question. Could they go in two shifts a day or break them up somehow just to reduce the the density of the the numbers of the bodies in the school? So I think there's still ways to do it, but I I haven't heard anyone argue they shouldn't be going back or schools shouldn't be open, but I think the concern is everybody back full-time and uh, with, with very few controls in place once they're in a classroom. Okay, in terms of the mask, the requirement for face masks, there's kind of a patchwork of rules around this across the country. If you look at places like Ontario, for example, where they have said that uh, face masks will be mandatory in class, and then other provinces are saying, well, it would just be in high traffic areas, like maybe when you're changing classes and you're walking down a school corridor. When do you think kids should be wearing masks? Oh boy, you know I'm not a I'm not a public health yeah. official, and I think they have formulas. They look at the level and the rates of transmission and what's happening in the communities, and there are all those variables that the experts, you know, factor into to when when the risk is at the point where masks are necessary. And you know, I think it's valid to say it's you know, will they become a you know if you're wearing a mask all day and it's not comfortable, does that become a distraction? And who enforces it? I can see the reasons for not requiring them, but I think as we see our numbers go up and we're learning more and more and the experts are learning more about this virus and how it transmits and how we can uh, reduce that. Um, You know, I would personally be more comfortable, but I'm not going to, you know, I think it's out of my level of expertise to say really what, what it should be. Okay, phone me on the open line on this. If you're a parent, you're, you work in the school system, I'd love to hear from you about back to school. Do you think the plan that the government has laid out is adequate? we got open phone lines right now, 604-280-9898 is the number to call me, 604-280-9898. Toll free on your cell, it is star 9898. Let's go to your calls right now. Hi, John in Pitt Meadows. Hi, how you doing? I'm good. Good. I'm a teacher myself, and I just wanted to call and say that, you know, I am concerned, but I just want to talk a little bit about something different. I'm actually excited to get back to school. I know that there's a lot of issues going on, but, you know, I'm actually excited to get back to work and to be in the classroom where I love to be. And I'm, I'm really concerned about all this talk about teachers not going back to work that, you know, I might be out of a job. You know, I'm a new teacher. I have a young one at home. And, you know, I need that income. Like, I, you know, I need to work. And, you know, I don't. Um, I don't know where this is going, but the biggest fear for me is saying, okay, well, we shut the schools down, everybody's at home doing online learning, and we don't need half the teaching population and half the teaching populations out of out of a paycheck. I don't know if that's going to happen, but, you know, that's in the back of my mind. And, you know, I, I feel fortunate to have a job. I feel fortunate to be a teacher. I want to be in the classroom, you know, and I, and I want to work because, you know, we're coming off summer holiday. We haven't been working. Yeah. We haven't been getting paid. So that's that's the real concern for me, you know, as as a job, I, you know, I want to go to go to work and get paid and earn money. What's the alternative, right? John, I'm really I'm really glad you called in. What grade do you teach? I teach high school, grades nine to twelve. Okay, what are your thoughts on those cohorts? Like you say, you're excited to get back to school, but I, I've heard I got kids in high school myself, and I, I've heard parents, I've heard the teachers' union express concern about these cohorts of 120 kids in a high school. Uh, how do you, how is that going to work in your classes? Do you think? Uh, Have they told you? 
Yeah, I mean, no, we haven't really. I think we're going to have the meetings at, at the beginning of the, at, you know, September 8th and 9th to try to, try to figure it out. Um, the, the thing is, we haven't tried it, you know, and, and we haven't opened the schools. We haven't been in the classrooms. We don't know what the kids are going to do. There's a lot of hypotheticals, right? There's a lot of, uh, I'm, this is going to happen for sure. This is going to happen. Kids aren't going to do this. This is, you know, there's going to be outbreaks. There might be. There might not be. We have to try something. We have to get back to school. We have to get the kids in the classroom. We have to get back to work. And we have to do our very best, you know, as a, as a province to, to, to kind of work through this together. And we can't just sit back and say, well, we're just going to sit at home online, everybody, and, uh, you know, that's the way yeah. it's going to be for the next whole year. Like, we what about masks? What about, what about face masks? Would you want to see kids wearing face masks in, in your class? Yeah, I do. Want, I do. Yeah. I think face masks are, are good. The other thing I'm concerned about for face masks is, is uh, you know, if you're, if you're in the classroom for, for multiple hours and you have the same face mask, you know, the cloth face mask breathing in and out, maybe you have a runny nose, maybe. I don't know how, I don't know what the health concerns are about that. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but, okay. you know, yeah. Okay, John, thank you very much for calling it. Okay, there's one teacher who's anxious to get back to work. Patty, do you think that's typical of, of most teachers? They want to go back to work? Well, I think it's it's what a lot of young parents, whether they're teachers or of other jobs to go back to, are feeling like, I got to go out and make a living, you know, and I'm worried about my job. And that's a real, real reality that, that's there. And that's the tension, I think. Then on the flip side, you have older teachers who may live with older family members, have an older spouse or someone who are concerned about the health risks. And, and I think that's really what public health officers are wrestling with all the time, the economic versus the risk. And even as, as this caller, John, is saying, um, you know, we don't really know. We're, we're going to try it. But the reality is yeah. for some people, it, it's a very serious health and safety possible, I mean, in the worst case, life and death decision. So it is the unknown. And, and I don't hear anyone saying to shut the schools down, everybody go home. What I do hear is for those who wish to continue remote learning and it works for them and they can do it to give that option. And then that lowers the numbers that are actually at school. And, and there's not going to be less of a need for teachers. Teaching remotely is a lot of work. Teachers are saying it's actually more work than teaching in class. It's harder in many ways. So I don't think there's any risk that we're going to not need teachers, whether they're teaching, you know, in person or virtually. But, um, you know, I think he's definitely expressing what a lot of people out there want schools to go back. They need their kids to go to school so they can go to work, whether they're teachers or something else. Um, for sure, there are those who are excited about it, but there are also those who are quite concerned about it. Okay, this is a big week on this file, and we'll be watching very closely for the rollout of those individual plans at the district level this week, and we'll see what people think of those. Patty, thank you for coming on with your, your take on it. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Oh, all right. Welcome back. Well, we kicked off the show today talking about getting our kids back into school. How about getting them back on the soccer field or back to playing minor sports as well? The B.C. government's announcing the next phase on a return to play for amateur sports in British Columbia. And one of the major minor sports in our province, of course, is soccer. I've had two boys who played soccer Great, great sport for kids, in my opinion. You get them out, get them playing, making friends, keep them healthy. I think it's an affordable sport for a lot of parents as well, not a lot of equipment to buy. So it's it's not surprising that it's probably up there about the number one sport in British Columbia for kids to participate in. Let's talk about the new return-to-play plan for soccer in British Columbia, a new phase in the plan just released uh, the other day, my guest is Peter Shad. He's a communications officer with the BC Soccer Association. Peter, thanks a lot for coming on. 
Michael, my fellow soccer dad, thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a soccer dad for sure. Um, let's talk about how this all went down. We, if we go back to the, the real dark days in March when play was suspended completely and, and soccer was shut down. I'll tell you, that was, that was a sad day in our house. Um, we've, we have had some gradual return to playing though, right? In June, there was the first phase of the plan that uh, return to play plan kicked in correct? That, that's right. June 12th, yeah. we had our distance-based model. That was soccer's phase one. And I know that uh, it's a little confusing because the government uh, introduced their sort of phases after we had sort of talked about phases in our approach. And so some people get a little confused because our, our phase one and phase two don't match with the government. Right. The government's in right. phase three right now. So just to clear up that confusion. But yes, it's been I mean, you talk about those dark days, and uh, and it was. It was very difficult. Uncertainty is not good, but in our organization, we decided we were going to make the most of the downtime and do a lot of things to, A, make sure we could get players back as soon as the health authority was willing to let us do that. So a lot of collaboration, a lot of feedback from our members, and our members are made up of the adult leagues uh, that play in our province and also the youth districts, and the clubs that we register our kids with belong to those youth districts. So constant surveys, constant feedbacks on, on what they felt would be a safe and gradual return that was aligned with the provincial government. And He's going to hate me saying this, but our executive director, Jason Allegott, was just uh, tremendous in a leadership role because he used a, a very contingency-based plan with all of his senior leaders at BC Soccer that every two weeks we would review and we would adjust based on what was happening at the time because we didn't want to just arbitrarily cancel everything. You know, our responsibility is to our members and we wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, they were looked after. And so yeah. yesterday was a really big day for us, Michael. I have to say it was a long time coming, and many people wondered if it was ever going to happen. There was certainly a lot of that, uh, that thought occurring in those dark days of March and early April. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about what was announced yesterday. You've got a new phase in return to play for uh, minor soccer in British Columbia. What are the highlights there? Well, the biggest thing is the idea of cohorts, which in our case, soccer cohorts includes four teams or 50 people. And that doesn't include the coaches and the parents of those groups. So when we're thinking about what I call the micros, which is the U8s, there might in some clubs be only 50 kids per age group, boys or girls. So it's, it's a great opportunity for them because they're just going to play each other. They are identified individuals within those groups. And the reason why we're going this direction is that the government wants us to be able to contact trace. That's the whole methodology behind that. So that's the biggest thing. Now, that'll get a little more tricky as the, the kids get older and they're playing in leagues. But it's still the same concept. It's four teams or 50 people. We have to consider uh, what each district or municipality is doing in terms of field capacity. So that's a, a factor we have to consider. But I think for parents, the other aspect of this is that you're playing primarily in district or in club or with neighboring districts. And that's part of the lessened travel in the province's uh, loosening of restrictions phase. So I think for parents, this might actually work out really well because I coached a club last year in Delta that had to travel to Chilliwack once, Mission Maple Ridge twice, and that's a lot for a Saturday. That's almost your whole Saturday sometimes. Yeah. So to play within district or within neighboring district, I think is going to be a benefit. And then the cohorts model you know, allows you to play in a group of four. Maybe you play three times each team once, and then you <clears throat> you flip and you play them in the other team's home. And then 
if you are going to break and do another new cohorts, you need two weeks in between. So th- those are the, the basics behind it. The only structural, or if you want to say it's the technical difference in this phase, is that we're going to eliminate throw-ins uh, and replace them with kick-ins, which, again, for the younger ages might actually be a bit of a benefit, and that's just to reduce the amount of hands that are on the ball. Okay, speaking to Peter Shad from the BC Soccer Association, this is a very interesting plan, and it makes sense the way that you guys have, have worked this out where you will have these cohorts of players, as you describe it, so 50 players, which is roughly four teams, that would play amongst each other. So you would only be playing against... So each individual team would only be playing against three other teams. Correct. Right? For for a period, and then you'd have a break, and then you'd switch to another cohort of teams. Right. And, 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 I, and I guess, and some, and I guess the, the, two-week, the two-week break is just to monitor in case anybody gets sick during that time. Is that right? Exactly. And, yeah. and for, for the younger age groups, too, like I said before, uh, you know, you might have a, a boys age group at U5 and some clubs that are a little bit smaller that only do have 50. So, you know, they, they mix and match their teams often on game days already. So it's, it's when you get a little older, it's more difficult. And, and also with the adults and the adults are, I think they're, they're going to be thrilled that they can play first and foremost um, they're just going to have to structure their league play a little bit differently where you're you're in a group of four and whether you just play three teams once and have a two two week break or you you double that and play six games then have a two week break on Vancouver Island for example you know they're going to try to finish their Jackson Cup playoffs they have semifinals to play well there's your your four teams in that group your cohort and they might be able to go on and, and complete that so i think it's a great solution to be honest with you uh given everything that we've gone through and uh, i think there's lots of reason and there's lots of positive advantages to it I, I know that what the worry is that you maybe have a team that's grouped in a in a group that's inappropriate and that's why i wonder if perhaps it'll be scheduled so that it's just three games at the outset to make sure that there aren't any uneven teams and then you go into you know a six-week phase after a two-week break. Okay, it's certainly going to look a lot different for any families out there who are involved in soccer, like our family's been involved in it. Um, yeah, it's going to look different with this plan, but I guess the good news is you'd have kids back on the field, and adults as well, as you mentioned. There's a lot of adults who play recreational soccer. Would there be like full contact on the, on the pitch, or will that be discouraged? Yes, correct. It's 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 gameplay. Uh, the only yeah. when we say modified gameplay, the only thing we're talking about is the throw-in aspect of it. And you know, keeping in mind, we're now conditioned in social distancing and good hygiene and sterilization that on the sideline, players will still be asked to keep their distance from one another. As will coaches. Even during training sessions, coaches will be asked to keep their distance. As will parents. And and the one aspect that I did allude to earlier is that each municipality has you know, a different set of guidelines for their fields and how many people can be on those fields. But beyond that, in training and as of today, if you have a a little group like I do of 11 players and you want to play a game between them of 5v5 or whatever it is, you play the game and you play it like you've always played it. And that's the most important thing is that we're back to regular gameplay. Uh, it's just yeah. those uh, sort of periphery activities that you have to still, you know, maintain distance and, and make sure that you're doing the correct sanitation and hygiene procedures. Speaking to Peter, Peter Shad, BC Soccer Association, how popular is soccer in British Columbia? I mean, the numbers are huge, right? 
It is. Yeah, well, we're well over uh, 100,000 participants on both the adult and the youth side. So it is the biggest uh, you know, provincial sports organization in, yeah. in our province. And yeah, the popularity, we want it to keep improving. And we know this has been a really difficult time. But uh, man, the, the, the benefits to, to people after this length of time locked away in our houses. I mean, with my own kids, I am very concerned about how much screen time they've had. It started in spring break, as you'll recall, Michael. It's been a long time. And my fear is that there's this inertia of comfort of being at home and being in front of a device or being in front of a screen because that's how we were learning. And so as a parent, you know, you'll say, well, you, you know, you're the parent, you've got you to minimize the, the, the screen time. But we're, we're also working from home to try to, you know, make sure our employers are satisfied with the working from home arrangement. And it's difficult to monitor that. And the best thing that can happen for kids, in, in my opinion, is sport. It's your chance to get exercise. It's your chance to have social reconnection. And, and I really hope it does yeah. sort of help us transition here a little bit what, out of this what, darkness. What if somebody gets sick? Like what if a kid comes down sick, a coach gets sick? What happens then? So that's always been in the previous phases as well, and, and that's a common sense one, but it's just to remove yourself and to identify, first of all, that you aren't feeling well and to remove yourself or not attend training in the first place. And I think that yeah. that, you know, that was all part of, uh, that, that's part of the common sense procedure of all of us. But, uh, you know, Dr. Henry's been saying to everybody, you don't take part if you're not feeling ill, and that message doesn't change for the soccer community as well. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the drug cartels in Mexico now, the rising death rate there. I think a lot of interest in this among people in British Columbia. Many people in B.C. have got uh, close ties to Mexico, where they just love to go on vacation down there. I've done some visits to Mexico a few times over the years. just love it. And when you see the tragedy that's unfolding there, they got a lot of COVID there now. Uh, and also the violence from the Mexican drug cartels is just brutal in terms of the murder rate, the death rate. There are connections to the cartels to Canada and British Columbia as well. Have a listen to this report here from Vice News. Mexico is on pace for another year of record violence. In the first six months of 2020, there were 17,439 murders up almost 2% from the same time last year. Helping to fuel that uptick in violence is the Jalisco New Generation Cartel, or CJNG. The CJNG leader is known as El Mencho. In the past few years, his cartel has grown from this ragtag group of gunmen and pickup trucks into this powerful paramilitary force with high-powered weapons and armored vehicles. In June, gunmen allegedly hired by El Mencho tried to assassinate Mexico City's police chief. Okay, you heard him talk there about one of the cartels, the Jalisco New Generation Cartel. And I encourage you to give me a follow on Twitter right now, at Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. And you will see some incredible video uh, posted recently by this particular cartel. This just an incredible brazen show of strength by one of these major Mexican drug cartels and the firepower, the armored vehicles, uh, the guys shouting allegiance to El Mencho, the drug dealer mentioned in that report. It's just extraordinary. So just check that out for me at Mike Smith News 
on Twitter. Let's talk a little bit more about this now with my guest, Douglas Century, very fine Canadian writer and journalist. He's the co-author of the book Hunting El Chapo, the inside story of the American lawman who captured the world's most wanted drug lord. Great book. I highly recommend it. Douglas, it's nice to talk to you again. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. A lot of people will uh, recognize the name El Chapo, who for a long time was, I guess, the most powerful and notorious Mexican drug lord, uh, finally captured. He had been captured several times and escaped, uh, but he was finally captured and extradited to the United States, where he's in a high-security prison. Tell me a li- Just briefly tell me a little bit about El Chapo and the, and the book that you worked on there. Well, El Chapo was the most powerful drug lord since you know, Pablo Escobar, and he was seen as largely untouchable, uh, an incredible operation, uh, the DEA, uh, Homeland Security, the uh, co-author of the book with me was Andrew Hogan, a DEA special agent, working with the Mexican Marines, did an operation and captured him. Of course, he tunneled out of the prison, but they recaptured him. And, uh, you know, it was a massive trial in New York, and he's going to be doing the rest of his life in prison. Now, his sons are still... um, very powerful narco traffickers, and his his co-equal in the Sinaloa cartel was a man who they've never touched, named Mayo Zambada. Uh, Chapo's sort of uh, fatal flaw was that he loved publicity, and uh, his name was out there. And the you know, to the United States, if you're a if you're a brazen target like he was, um, it's a scalp you kind of want. So you know, they've decapitated him and 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 his power, but the cartels. Yeah. I mean, the, all the all the stuff you've been de- de- describing, you know, uh, nature abhors a, a vacuum. So in the right. absence of a massive uh, leader like Chapo, there's all sorts of other cartels vying for to be the top dog. And El Mencho has definitely stepped up. The Nueva Generación de Jalisco, the new generation of Jalisco, uh, are probably the most powerful cartel now in Mexico. Yeah, so it's you incredible. Chapo, but you, still, you don't remove the problem, you know. I remember the last time I spoke to you on the radio, Douglas, and we talked about the capture of El Chapo, and I remember you saying, just watch. I mean, this is kind of like a whack-a-mole game. Someone else will yep. arise to fill that power vo- void uh, among these cartels. Tell me about this guy, El Mencho, who, who is now the most wanted and, 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 and regarded as the most dangerous drug lord in Mexico. Who is this guy? Well, he's a, the top dog. He's younger. He's, uh, you know, in his 40s. He, Chapo had uh, a reputation of corrupting politicians. And, you know, there were always these narco banners saying, you know, the government should uh, stop protecting <laughs> Chapo. Uh, Mencho, as you said, uh, this is sort of really brazen. He's fighting a war uh, with a different cartel. And this, all these names might get confusing. The, the Santa Rosa de Lima cartel. And uh, just a show of force that the Mexican government can't even match. You know, I mean, armored armored vehicles and 50 yeah. calibers. Um, you know, yeah, he's the top dog. He's the he's the guy. I think the Sinaloa cartel probably still has a bigger share of the market in North America because of the trade routes. But they say that the new generation of, of Jalisco out of Guadalajara are dominant now within Mexico. Right. And it's probably the, just the, the firepower. Um, you know, when Chapo, I knew that when Chapo left, there would just be war. And so the, yeah. it's not surprising that um, the, the murder rate has gone up and then the violence has escalated. Now, I really encourage so people to check check out that video that I just posted on Twitter. And, you know, the first time I saw this video, Douglas, uh, of the new, uh, Jalisco New Generation <laughs> cartel with their firepower, I mean, it looks like an army. It does not look like a gang. It looks like a real army uh, of guys. Just so this- can you imagine... 
Yeah, you imagine the 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 the, the daunting task of law enforcement going up against that. Yeah. And I think we'll talk about the capture operation in Kuliakon against one of Chapo's sons, where you know you just basically get on, outgunned. Uh, so uh, this is a flex, you know. It's a it's a way to say, yeah, you know, this is what we've got. And and they're <laughs> they're basically saying in an action like that, we're untouchable. You know, come try to get us. Um, and that's yeah, that's a frightening prospect. Let me ask you about the the government's the Mexican government's response to this. Speaking to Douglas Champion, our Douglas Century, uh, his book is Hunting El Chapo. Uh, the Mexican president Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, uh, how was he approaching this? Because I know there's been some. At one point, he said that hug it was what was his quote? Hugs are better than bullets, and maybe hugs, they shouldn't hugs be. Not bullets. Hugs, yeah. not bullets. Yeah, but tell me about him. Well. <laughs> You know, it makes sense from a point of view. I think, uh, you know, he was elected in a landslide in 2018, Lopez Obrador, and he basically said uh, this war, you know, this militarized approach, fighting, you know, blazing gun battles with these guys is not working. And what we should do is eradicate poverty. And, yes, he said famously, would have mocked in all sorts of memes, you know, hugs, not bullets. Um, It makes sense. It makes sense theoretically. Let's tackle the social issues and all this. But, you know, if you've got kidnappings, you, you know, we can't even begin with the litany of crimes. You've got kidnappings and assassinations of police officials and, and you have to tackle it. So what he's basically said is contradictory. I think on the ground, these guys are uh, I mean, the Mexican forces are trying to combat them. And his official policy has been, um, you know, this drug, the drug war. Take this 10,000-foot view. The drug war has failed. There's no way to fight a militarized battle as long as the market for cocaine and opioids and everything. You know, one of the things that people need to understand is the Mexican cartels, unlike Pablo Escobar and the, and the Cali cartel, they were strictly cocaine guys. The Mexicans do everything. They, they started off as marijuana roots they took over the cocaine if you watch the narcos mexico you'll see how they took over the cocaine roots but then there's heroin there's opioids um and it's really really tough as long as canadians continue to consume drugs americans continue and and europeans there's a massive market so the president of mexico can say let's fight poverty and this is not a war but there's a huge market billions and billions of dollars and there's going to be turf wars over it so I think it's a highly contradictory um, position he's in. He's basically said, I don't think we should be fighting a war, but on the other hand. Like, well, yeah, but on the other hand, though, like you said, they just briefly arrested El Chapo's son. Uh, they just took down another, uh, just arrested another drug drug lord called El Maro. They all seem to have nick- these yeah. nicknames. Um, is that <laughs> kind of contradictory? Like on the one hand, he's saying, let's eliminate poverty first, uh, hugs, not bullets. But at the same time, there are still major... Uh, in, there are still sort of major military operations against these cartels, right? Of course, yeah. And so, yeah, they arrested a guy. All these names will blur together. They arrested a guy named El Mato, which is the who's, uh, fighting a war with El Mencho. Mato yeah. means basically sledgehammer. And um, how this is how diversified they are. This guy's claim to fame. He's 40 years old. I think his real name is Yepes Ortiz, uh, Jose Antonio Yepes Ortiz. His main claim to fame was like fuel diversion. They were stealing a million dollars daily, apparently at one point, of of gasoline and oil. Um, Yeah, they arrested him. I think he had kidnapped somebody. They went in there. uh, It was a show of force. And this was just, I think, earlier on August 2nd, right? Um, They 
basically have to act. I think the Mexican government has to act when there are acts of such grotesque violence. So it is contradictory. And I mean, do you want to talk about the the shootout in in Culiacan with with Chapo's son, or do you want to? Yeah, brief, briefly tell that. me briefly tell me what happened there with El Chapo's kid. So he has a bunch of sons, and they're actually there's sort of an internecine fight within the within the uh, Sinaloa cartel. But one of his sons is named Ovidio, and his nickname is El Raton or the Mouse. Uh, he was captured. I think he's he's um, extraditable to the United States, and that's the one thing these guys fear. Uh, they don't mind doing time in a Mexican prison, as you saw Chapo, you know, tunneled out. Most of these guys can escape. Bribery is endemic, systemic in Mexico, but they don't want to be extradited to the United States. And right. I think there was an extradition for him. They captured him. Massive shootout. I mean, the they, the the cartel basically came. I mean, his faction of the cartel, the uh, Ovidio. Um, they just shot it out. I think 13 people were dead. Dozens of them were, were hurt. And the police gave him back. <laughs> I mean, the go. National Guard. <laughs> yeah. And the president said, uh, I think, hey, we don't want any more bloodshed. You know, we have to we had to let him go to avoid innocent loss of life. And this raises the question, is Mexico a narco state? You know, I mean, this is a very, very sad situation because, as you say, Mexico, Mexico is a proud country with enormous resources of tourism and many other industries other than drugs. But if you capture somebody and they have the firepower to shoot it out, just imagine that happening in Canada with a, a notorious uh, criminal of any kind. It's like Capone's Chicago in a way. We're going to shoot it out with you. You can't take us and they got to give you back. So you have to wonder, is it a fa- you know a failure of governance and is are the yeah. narcos more powerful than the government themselves? It's a, it's a tragedy, and I'm not sure there's a solution. There's not certainly not an easy fix, because decapitating right. the top of the food chain like El Chapo certainly didn't. It's a heartbreaking situation, especially for people who, who love the country of Mexico, and many people in British Columbia do. And uh, Douglas, thanks a lot for coming on today to talk about it. I really appreciate it. All right, this is Mike Smith. Welcome back to the show. Let's uh, end the show by uh, geeking out a little bit about comic books. Uh, when I was a kid, I loved comic books. I continued to collect them. When as I got older, I got about, I don't know, 20 long boxes of comics in my garage that I don't look at very often these days. Nothing too valuable. But man, oh man, you want to talk about a valuable collection of comic books discovered in the city of Vancouver? This was incredible. This was the discovery of a collection of Golden Age comic books, many of them in mint condition in Vancouver, worth a fortune. And this collection has now been recognized with a special pedigree because of its historic value. Let's talk about it now with my guest, Pat Shaughnessy. He's the owner of Golden Age Collectibles, uh, the great comic book store in Vancouver. Pat, it's nice to talk to you. Again, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. I love your store, and oh, thank you. um, yeah, really highly recommend it there on Granville. Uh, let's talk about the discovery of these comic books. Now, these these comic books were discovered quite some time ago. It's been like what over twenty years since they were discovered in Vancouver. But I know you had a key role in it, right? Uh, yeah, everything went through me. 
Okay, let's, um, let's talk about that. What happened? By, yep. um, by a fellow who's, he was the executor of the state, and his uh, mother-in-law had just died. Um, and when they were selling the house, they found the father's comics. Now, he had died in 1982. So the comics had sat undisturbed, um, you know, literally for 18 years at that point. They had no idea they were there. Um, and uh, say they were selling the house, and they only had five days to before they had to go fly back home. And uh, they contacted me on the Monday, and I bought them on the Friday. Um, <laughs> so uh, the comics were originally purchased um, in Vancouver newsstands. And uh, if anybody goes on... Uh, to the CGC Comics website, they'll see pictures of Vancouver newsstands that I was able to get from the city archives, uh, the same ones where the comics were bought. You know, so really cool uh, pictures. And the comics were purchased uh, starting in 1944 by a Chinese gentleman, and he worked on the CP ferries. Um, so uh, he used to dock at, if anybody remembers the old CP ferry, used to dock at the, um, at the waterfront, what we call waterfront station now. Yeah. And the newsstand photos are newsstands right across the street from, uh, from the station. And because he was an adult, I mean, we don't know the full story. I mean, the brother-in-law was able to guess at a few things, that um, he probably bought the comics um, because, uh, to improve his English and for entertainment. Um, and uh, like I say, it started in 19, the collection starts in 1944 and wow. continues sporadically right up into uh, the early 1960s. Unfortunately, none of the, early, none of the um, superhero books from the early 1960s, the Marvels and things like that, but lots of superhero books from what we call the Golden Age of Comics, right. which is 1940s. Right, nine, yeah, the golden age of these comics, and they sure called the right guy there at Golden Age Collectibles. Pat, when you got that first phone call and you said, "Look, we've got a, we got a pile of comic books here. You might be interested in." I'm, I'm sure you get calls like that a lot from people who want to sell comic books. What went through your mind when you heard that first description? Did you think it was going to be the gold mine that it was? Uh, well, you never want to assume things like that, but it yeah. sounded. I mean. You know, based on my experience, it sounded really good because, yeah. number one, it was collected by an adult rather than a child. Yeah. You know, and typically that always means better shape because they don't get handed around between brothers, sisters, friends, uh, traded back and forth, which was really common for comics in those days. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it had only been through one person's hands. Right, uh, and he would he would buy the comics, as and I understand it, maybe, I don't know, carefully read them once, and then he would put them in like a cupboard, right? They just went into a cupboard, yeah. There was yeah. no, of course, there was no bags or boards or any archival supplies back then. So, yeah. um, and you kind of, you know, and it must have been a nice, uh, a cool and dry place, you know, because comics just, in B.C. especially, just comics sitting over uh, long periods of time in British Columbia, especially in basements, they pick up little humidity stains and things like that. Right. Um, you know, sort of, you just get, it's, it's actually related to mold, but it's, yeah, it, it just creates these sort of brown or, or black stains. All right, so it. this it, is... had none of those. These are in great condition, and we're talking about comic books from, as you said, from the 1940s, the 1950s, uh, Batman, people, of course, will remember, will, of course, know Batman, Detective Comics, uh, Green Lantern, The Flash, uh, you know, some these are famous titles for people who are familiar with Golden Age comics. So when you first laid your eyes on these, Pat, what went what went through your mind when you saw these things? Oh, it's pretty exciting. I mean, it's just <laughs> yeah. you don't you know you don't see virgin material like this very often. Yeah. And uh, just to give uh, your your listeners an idea of the uh, comics in the collection, over a third of them 
were the best known copies in the world. Wow. You know, and wow. of those, <laughs> of that third, um, more than half of those were the best and only. Like, there was no other, there was no other equivalent. Like, nobody had a competing one that was just as good. Um, the, over half the collection was graded the best or second best known copies. Amazing. Um, 80% is... of the collection had white pages or off-white to white pages. Again, a very crucial thing for collecting old paper. Right, right. Amazing. Like, this is an historic find of uh, valuable comic books right here in Vancouver, which is just incredible. Now, uh, the, the news here is that this collection has now received a, a special category, uh, a special pedigree, Yes. Uh, known as the this the Chinatown pedigree or the Chinatown collection of comics. That's what right. is the significance of that? That this is now a, a pedigreed collection. Well, you know, pedigrees often get named after the cities that they come right. out of. Right. Um, and there was a collection of comics that came out of Vancouver, oh, probably more than ten years ago now, that was considered a Vancouver collection. Um, the only difference between that is it would, it actually wasn't originally bought in Vancouver, but it was. It came out of Vancouver. Um, it was bought in newsstands elsewhere. But uh, this one was, you know, they had there's Vancouver newsstand markings, so I couldn't call it the Vancouver collection. So since it came from Chinatown, and since there are some very um, interesting markings on them, uh, both uh, name written in Chinese, but also like a personal symbol, um, which we did some research on, which is just sort of a personal symbol the guy would have designed for himself. As a name, I believe they're called chops. There's, you know, but uh, they're kind of hard to de- to decipher. Right, right. Okay, so now this has been certified now as a as a pedigreed collection. What what does that mean for people who are not familiar with yeah. with collecting comic books? So, does that um, increase yeah, the I mean, value? Uh, there's um, uh, comics nowadays um, get graded. You know, there's yeah. independent companies that grade comics. The most important one and the one I used was a company called CGC. Right. And they're in Florida. Yeah. And it's not you telling me what the grade is. It's not me telling you what the grade is. We have an independent um, you know, authority decide what the grade is and the quality right. of the paper. Right, right. And they and have it, now it, designated the, the, uh, the pedigree of this historic collection. Does that increase the value of the books, do you think? It's too soon to tell. Um, yeah. for, most, for many pedigrees, it does, because people know the quality of the books. Um, you know, there are, you know, I mean, 80% of it's a science and 20% of it's an art. So when people look at a book and they can recognize the gloss and the, just the, the freshness of the book, I guess, is the best way to put it. You know, because you can get books that are pretty structurally sound, but, you know, they just have lost uh, maybe, like, say, a little bit of gloss or a little bit of color. Um, that's not... In this case, yeah, I mean, they're very fresh-looking. So in order to recognize these collections, um, and people love stories behind collections. There's some amazing collections that have come out, and, um, you know, they give them their nicknames, and they get a special label. And, you know, uh, to be a pedigree collection, it has to be large. It has to include important books, um, and it should be in runs. Yeah, that's congratulations on that. That's that's very exciting for this historic find of comic books for sure. How much are these books worth, Pat? Like individually, what are the what would you say are the most valuable individual comic books there in this collection? Well, the most valuable one now uh, um, that I've been able to you know um, <laughs> the market. A lot of these things uh, don't um, come on the market very often. 
Yeah. So sometimes you're using old data to work things, but there's a book that's been increasing in great value over the last five years, and it's uh, Captain America, and the number was number 46. Um, and the reason it's become so historically uh, popular and important is it's one of the only two comics produced during the Second World War that shows um, a Holocaust scene on it. So it's Captain America rescuing somebody, uh, rescuing the um, survivors from, uh, um, you, you see ovens and you see gas pipes and, you know, uh, kind of wow. macabre for sure, you know, I mean, sad on one level. Um, but uh, it's a very popular cover. Um, how, how, much you know, would that book, how much would that book be worth? The last copy uh, that was sold at auction this year was a lower grade than this one, and that one sold for 23000 Whoa, whoa. Twenty three thousand. So the one that you have is worth more than that, most likely. One would assume so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you sold um, when you bought these books? Have you sold a lot of them, or do you, are they still available? Yeah, I mean, for over time, you have to sell things. You know, I mean, yeah. that's that's sort of what we do in business. But like I yeah. said, I do have uh, the records, so I've already had people contact me and was able to verify that they are in fact from this collection. So if anybody did, you know, a lot of them went local. So if uh, anybody um, does want verification on anything, I can certainly do it. Right, and are any the CGC, they will have the same information, and they'll be able to get the pedigree designation to their books. Yeah, it's kind of uh, it's kind of exciting for sure. I was explaining to a friend of mine what what does this pedigree mean, and it's, I I said it's it's kind of like um, UNESCO uh, designating a world heritage site. You know, it's like <laughs> well, that's, yeah. that makes it feel awfully important. Thank you, but yeah, uh, but yeah anyway. it's just, people again, people love to know the histories of the collections. Right. And, People and, love uh, the stories. Like you said, they love the story of how these books were discovered, the gentleman who collected them way back in the 40s and 50s, and how they sat in that cupboard for decade after decade, only to be discovered uh, by you and for grateful collectors. Very, very exciting. Um, what, like, Are some of these books available for sale at Golden Age Collectibles? Can people still buy not them? Not at the moment. Um, oh. uh, a lot, I mean, it just because a lot of them don't have their pedigree label. Yeah. Um, you know, we just start. We started first with the raw data, and then I sent. I haven't even gotten back anything that I sent them just to get it started. Um, but how, um, hey, Pat, how are things going down at Golden Age Collectibles? It's a very famous comic book store in Vancouver. We've oh, all been walloped by this uh, by this pandemic. How have things been going for you down there at your store? Oh well, it's nowhere near what it would have been this time last year. You know, obviously yeah. we don't have any of the tourists. You know, and, yeah. and, and some of our great customers just. You know, they aren't aren't employed right now or worried about things. Um, so, yeah, we're keeping our head above water. But, yeah, I mean, it's uh, um, kind of sad we don't have all our staff on. And, and uh, you know, we just have to muddle through. And, you know, but uh, as you know, we've, we've been through several Canuck riots and the financial meltdowns on in the 80s and in the <laughs> 10 years ago. So we'll just keep on muddling through. But, I mean, the great thing is the comic book market for old comic books is stronger than ever. Wow. You know, so and just one thing that's probably worth mentioning, I'll just yes. throw in there is sure. a lot of these comic books. Uh, there's less than a hundred known copies in any condition. You know, yeah, and that's for famous characters. You know, um, you know they just weren't. They were thrown out in, in record numbers. You know, the attrition oh. rate on these was pretty bad. So right. Even That's finding why get, a low-grade copy is is an exciting moment sometimes. Yeah, you know. it's a historic collection. And Pat, congratulations to you on the discovery of this, these books and uh, now recognized with a historic pedigree. And thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Well, thank you, Michael. 
Okay, you bet. Thank you. I look forward to showing you some copies when you come. I would, I would love to see them next time yeah. I'm in near. I'll, I'll pop into Golden Age Collectibles and ask for you. Great. Thank, thank you, Pat. Right. That's Pat Shaughnessy. He is the owner of Golden Age Collectibles, the comic book shop on Granville Street in Vancouver. Talking about the discovery of those Golden Age comics.